Hey there, I'm Sarah Duty, host of the Career Strategy Podcast. Many professionals are seeking more impact, flexibility, growth, and let's face it, getting paid what they're worth. But how do you unlock this in your career? It starts with strategy. I'm taking you behind the scenes of what's working for my career coaching clients. You'll hear strategies and actionable, yet sometimes against the grain, advice for how you can be the CEO of your career and stop dreading Mondays. Ready to level up your career? Let's get after it. If you are new to these career Q&As, I keep it really simple. I don't have an agenda. I don't have slides. This is really dependent on you asking questions. So Nancy says, what elements should one add to their portfolio when they are fresh out of UX or UI bootcamp, like in Nancy's case, Career Foundry, but you know, so many others out there, right? Okay, so we could talk about portfolios for four hours, but we don't have time. So what are the most important things to think about if you're creating a portfolio fresh out of a bootcamp? Thing number one, chances are you probably have slides from some type of portfolio you may have made during your time in the bootcamp, right? Maybe you had to make end of program presentations that you showed to people, etc. The thing to remember is the user or the audience of that portfolio is not the same as the people who are recruiters, who are hiring managers, right? And I say this because I see so many portfolios from people who come out of boot camps and those portfolios, number one, a lot of times they sound like answers to a UX exam, meaning they describe or define UX terminology, processes, methodology, etc. And by that, I mean, here's the affinity map. We make affinity maps to help organize thoughts and spot patterns and whatever. And it's like, the user of your portfolio in the interview and hiring process doesn't need you to, you know, put in the UX dictionary definition of what research is, affinity maps, etc. They don't want to just see that you know that. They want to see proof or receipts that you've done that previously. So that's thing number one, Nancy. Don't let the portfolio, don't try and reuse, you know, verbatim what you may have already created. Remember the user of your portfolio is different in those scenarios. And then the biggest thing that, that I see, and this applies to everyone, regardless of if you're in a boot camp or not, to summarize what we talked about yesterday, most portfolios only focus on the what. And they do that through the visuals that they show, and they do that through the text that is in the portfolio. So it says, next we did user research. We conduct research to help understand the user. And it's like, obviously, you know? And I'm being like a little feisty about this, but I see the mistake happen so often where people in their portfolios like state the obvious and that's not gonna help you stand out. So no stating the obvious, no only focusing on the what. So in that research case, okay, you did research, great. Tell me more. And the tell me more part, you got to think like a journalist. Think about why did you do that research in the first place? How did it come to be? Why did you decide on that specific type of research? 
Why did you decide you wanted to talk to those specific types of people? What did you want to learn from that research? How did you do it? What methods, etc.? How many people did you talk to? Don't just say, I did a survey. Was it with five people, 500, 5,000? That's a big difference, right? And then the last thing is, don't forget to say what happened. And that what happened doesn't always have to be, this project saved the company a million dollars because that's not reality, right? So instead, think about what happened. It could be that you saved the company a million dollars. It could also be that you learned the hypothesis your team had was wrong. It could be that thing that got designed didn't work when it came to actually doing usability tests on that. So you have to explain what happened. And if you do those things, if you think like a journalist and go beyond the what, you will stand out because so many portfolios read like answers to UX exams and only focus on the what. Nancy, I hope that helps you. I know that was a lot. All right, Manal asked, how many case studies do we need to explain in an interview? How much time should we spend to explain each case study? I don't know. I don't know, you know, I can't predict what you're gonna be asked in an interview, how much time you're gonna be allocated and things like those. That's really on you. Before the interview, ask those questions. Ask how long the interview is. Ask them if they can give you a short agenda or ask them if there will be time for you to present something from your portfolio. If you ask these questions ahead of the interview, doing that will help eliminate so much of the anxiety, fear, worry, catastrophizing, etc., that you guys put on yourselves before interviews by not asking these questions. It's perfectly acceptable to ask questions like that. So Manal, just ask and see what they say. And then if you're not able to ask, if you don't get answers, I would be prepared. You're only gonna have time really for one, I think. Be prepared with one. I would be prepared, I'm kind of making this up right now, but I think, you know, five minutes is way too short probably. I think if you could practice around 10 minutes or so, which I know also seems short, at least you can be confined to that 10 minutes. I think it's a lot easier to extend that 10 minutes if they give you 15, but it's a lot harder to take a 15 minute thing that you practice down to 10. You know what I mean? So Manal, hopefully that answers your question. All right, so Kuhu wants to know, hey Kuhu, on the resume, if you have transferable skills from a previous position, should you combine all of those? or highlight the specific transferable skills. So I think when it comes to your resume, you wanna keep it chronological. It's much easier to skim, scan, etc. for both humans and the applicant tracking systems or ATS if you keep that chronological. Now, if you want to call out specific skills and experience, etc., that is possible through a couple of things. Number one, cover letter great opportunity to highlight skills and experience that you think like perfectly aligns with the job you're applying to. So cover letters, I think there's value in them for that reason, because it allows you to help point out things that people could easily miss on your resume. And I think cover letters are not dead. Some people will say they are a waste of your time, but my argument is what if that one cover letter you say you send 
is the thing that helps capture people's attention and spark their interest and actually spend more than six seconds with your resume and then you get an interview. So that's what I have to say about cover letters, but kuhu, yeah. I think trying to like group your work history in anything other than chronological, I think it's gonna potentially put the user experience of the resume at risk. Let me know if that answered your question. I hope I understood it. Okay, Gina wants to know, you love UX research when you got your degree in computing, but haven't managed to land any interviews for entry jobs. Okay, not knowing anything about your previous experience, education, etc. this one is a little tricky, but I would think you should consider, and this applies to many of you who are seeking your first job or switching to user experience from another job, think about even though you have not held the title of UX researcher previously, in what scenarios in previous jobs or in your education have you done research? So if you guys follow me for a while, you're probably sick of this example, but I did have this teacher who was in my career coaching program and they wanted to switch into research and they had not had the title UX researcher before because they were a teacher. So what they did was, you know, in conversation with me, we discovered they actually had done research because part of their job as a teacher was that they did this whole curriculum revamp and part of that curriculum revamp. So they were able to take that research they did, even though it's about developing this curriculum and frame it as research experience on their resume, on their LinkedIn and in their portfolio. So Gina, think about that. Are there situations where you've done research that you could use and leverage to serve as examples of your research experience. Okay, Morgan wants to know, how do you show work examples in a portfolio when you did them as part of a corporation, meaning it is confidential information that you're not allowed to show? At a high level, and obviously I'm not an attorney, but I would ask yourself, number one, are there ways you could talk about this without saying the company name? Can you abstract it? So I would challenge you, like if we were to sit down and have coffee and I said, tell me about this project, but don't tell me the company name and try and abstract it a little, that might help you see how you could include it in your portfolio. Now, when it comes to visuals, there may be the situation where you absolutely cannot show anything. Okay. There's also a scenario where can you go back to them and say, under these circumstances, could I show these visuals? For example, can you redact, blur, crop things so that the interface and product, no one knows what it is, like in terms of company, right? If you redesign the navigation, okay, could you like zoom in to just the navigation and go into the details of that while blurring out the company logo, let's say? That would be one idea. Can you also go back to them and say, hey, I understand there are these confidentiality requirements or whatever. I want to run a situation by you. Would I be able to show this if it was in a portfolio that I'm showing someone in person or over Zoom in an interview? You might find they say yes, but you won't know unless you ask. And a lot of times you guys just think NDAs mean you can never show it under any circumstances. And you make that assumption 
and you don't ask. But if you ask, you might find there's an opportunity to show it. The other thing I think people make this assumption is that, again, you don't ask. Companies might not want screenshots of their product out on Dribbble, Behance, on your website that anyone can access and Google, right? But they might be okay with it if it's a PDF on your computer they are showing people in interviews. So Morgan, think about that. I think it's reframing this narrative we tell ourselves about NDAs and you're never allowed to show anything and oh my goodness, well, let's look at it differently. What if there is a way, but to know if there is, you need to be doing a little bit of detective work and ask. All right, two-page resume. Yes, absolutely. There is no rule that says you can only have a one-page resume I don't know who keeps spreading this total myth. It is untrue. And the reason that I am so adamant about not restricting yourself to a one-page resume is you're going to compromise the user experience of the resume and you're going to sell yourself short because you're going to do two things. One of two things, maybe both. You're going to make the font size so small that no one can read it and or you are going to eliminate details about your skills and experience that really could set you apart from other people because you kind of just went in and deleted a bunch of stuff to try and make a fit on one page. So whoever told you this, wherever you heard it from, 100% wrong. And I say this with like 1 million percent confidence because I have talked to so many recruiters and hiring managers about this. All the ones I've talked to don't care. Now, can you equally go on LinkedIn today and post this question and have people that totally disagree with me? Yeah, but if you ask them, why should my resume be one page? I'd be really curious to see their answer because the reasons I just laid out, I think make a heck of a lot of sense. Okay, Morgan had a follow-up question about resumes. Do I write it for a human or a person? You need two versions. And you need two versions because sometimes you will be emailing or messaging someone on LinkedIn and a literal human will say, send me your resume. If they do, you want to send one that is like a little bit maybe more human friendly. You also want one that is optimized for the applicant tracking system. But you have to remember the one that goes into the applicant tracking system, a human will very, very likely also read it. So we don't have time to go into the details of that right now. If you go to my website, careerstrategylab.com slash articles. There are multiple articles about resumes over there that might help you, Morgan. Okay, some of you are asking what you can do to set yourself up for a job search that you plan to have in the future. What you need to do is two things. Focus on getting your career materials, meaning your resume, your LinkedIn, and your portfolio in a minimum viable state because number one, you very much could get hired with a minimum viable portfolio, minimum viable resume. I have seen this happen time and time again with the people in my career coaching program who say, I, someone, actually two people recently said, I only had one project in my portfolio and it was half baked and I still got the interview and I still got the offer. So that's thing number one, get your career materials in minimum viable shape. Thing number two, relationships. You cannot ignore relationships. It is very important. You want to be making sure you are doing things to become more visible to the people 
at the companies where you want to work. And you do that on LinkedIn. You could try and do it elsewhere, but think of where the people who are hiring hang out. Most of them hang out on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn's algorithms, we don't have time to go into it today, but LinkedIn's algorithms tend to favor people who are engaging with the people who work at the companies where they apply and those companies. So let's say you wanna work at Delta Airlines because I'm flying Delta very soon. You wanna work at Delta Airlines, great. You should be going and finding people who work at Delta Airlines on LinkedIn, which is not that difficult to do, and start communicating with them. This is like basic social skills. A lot of you are like, what do I say? I'm so scared. It's like, did they post something on LinkedIn? Leave a comment, you know, but don't just say, cool, neat, nice, hey, like don't leave one word comments, like seek to have a conversation in the comments. And LinkedIn's algorithm, especially the one that impacts or feeds into LinkedIn Recruiter could bump you when someone from Delta Airlines is searching for say a UX researcher. We'll have to do like a dedicated live about that, but Leverage LinkedIn. And a lot of people say, I don't like LinkedIn. I don't like social media. LinkedIn feels toxic. It's not safe, etc. Okay, right now, the way the world works is that people who are looking for people to hire hang out on LinkedIn. So if you want to be visible on LinkedIn to these people, you have to hang out on LinkedIn. It's like people who are looking for a partner but and complain that you know there's no one in their town that they think is cool enough to date and it's so hard to meet people if those people never leave their house how are they ever gonna find anyone right it's not like someone's gonna come knocking at their door one day and their soulmates there you know that's ridiculous that is what you're really doing if you're digging your heels in and saying i'm not gonna post on linkedin I don't want to, you know, subject myself to negative comments and all this stuff. It's like, okay, I get a lot of negative comments all the time. Do I keep showing up on LinkedIn? Yes. And if you're searching for a job, LinkedIn is where you can be the most visible, in my opinion. Let's see. Nasli wants to know, is having a bootcamp certificate enough? You've spoken with a bunch of people and they advise it's not enough needing design skills or HCI. Okay. I have an article on my website, careerstrategylab.com slash articles, a few articles about how to get hired after a UX bootcamp. There's a lot of great tips in there, but one thing to remember, and it's very much also a mindset thing, is going to a bootcamp is not a ticket to get hired. And I know they make you think that because that's how they do their marketing and they promise that you'll get hired. But I also know a lot of people don't get hired, unfortunately. And Part of that is because many of the boot camps don't do a good job at teaching you the get hired part of the process. The other thing is companies want people who have experience, who can hit the ground running. And also we have to remember companies have kind of leaned down, not all of them, some of them. So even though maybe in the past they would have hired lots of junior people because they had other people to kind of coach them and help them. A lot of the people that could have been mentoring, coaching, et cetera, may not be there. So 
that's kind of a problem of the market right now. I think what you need to do though is think about, because many people switch from other careers into UX. What you need to think about, and this goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, what experience do you have from your previous education, from your life experience, from your other job that might give you an edge over other candidates? The other thing for all you switchers out there to think about is, let's say you previously worked in education as a teacher and you're switching into user experience. All right, great. What you need to do is maybe focus your job search on getting hired as a UX designer, UX researcher at an education company. Because if you apply to a job at an education company and there are other candidates who have zero years of experience in education and you apply and you have five years of experience in education, that might give you an edge over other candidates because you have that industry domain knowledge that they may lack and even though maybe you have zero or one years of experience in user experience, that experience as a teacher from your previous career could give you the edge. So for all of you switchers, think about that. All right, thanks guys. Have a great Thursday and I will talk to you soon. I gotta go get my flight. Thanks for listening to the Career Strategy Podcast. Make sure to follow me, Sarah Duty, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or LinkedIn. If anything in today's episode resonated with you, I'd love to hear about it. Tag me on social media or send me a DM. And lastly, if you found this episode helpful, I'd really appreciate it if you could share it with a friend or give us a quick rating on Spotify or review on Apple Podcasts. Catch you later.